Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Maybe I told you in the last letter that we were going for a tramp with a Canadian couple. We started Friday the 13th. Can you imagine how lucky that day went? The first night, we didn't come to a hut, but had to sleep on a big rock that was leaning a bit. Ron and Sharon had a tent they could put up anywhere, so they slept in that. Urban and myself slept under the sky, with only our sleeping bags and the outer tent if it started to rain. It started to rain, of course, in the middle of the night, and the outer tent didn't keep us dry. We were soaked wet. The next day, we went on. We had to climb, or rather, we had to pull ourselves up by small bushes and grass, up the mountain that was 1,500 meters. It was really hard, and in some places it was soaking wet, and there were rivers you could fall down into as well. At the end, they told us that we've been tramping one of New Zealand's hardest hikes. We managed the whole thing in a week, with heavy backpacks, and we calculated that the total distance was about 85 kilometers. Maybe I should tell you that I've become an aunt to a little girl. Her name is Anna, and she was born on December 11th. Heidi. On the last episode of Guild. He looked at the vehicle and thought, oh yeah, so he says. He went over and he reckoned he got a bit of wire off a fence over here. Mm. Broke it off, come over, and he pulled it, opened it up, scuffled around, opened the thing, and found the keys in the glove box, right? Yeah. You know the story. So if David came, stole the car and threw the stuff out, how does the tag get there, and how do the other things get up the track an hour and a half? And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive. And I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. In the last episode, 
we went over David Tamahedi's basic defence. That he walked up Tararu Creek Road, intending to hike up to Crosby's clearing, but instead found and stole Heidi and Urban's car, a white Subaru station wagon. He then drove the short distance into Thames, where he checked into the Sunkist Hotel, before the next day taking three other backpackers on a tiki tour of the Coromandel. As we move through the details of this case over the next few months, I'll at times make corrections or additions. I've been poring over documents in the last week and picked up on a couple notes. The first relates to the parking of the Subaru outside the Sunkist Hotel after Tamahedi alleges he stole it from Tararu Creek Road. It's widely been reported that he parked the vehicle out the front of the hotel. But having read Tamahedi's original statement, he actually said he parked at the back of the place, not out the front. When asked by the detective, did you ever leave it at the front? He replied, no, no, no. The hotel owner also had not recalled seeing the car parked at the front when questioned by police. This is just Tamahedi's statement. So it's certainly possible that he had parked it out the front at some point. But I think it's worth noting if particular emphasis is being placed on the visibility of the vehicle at the Sunkist. The second thing I'd like to mention is regarding the backpackers that Tamahedi gave a tour of the Coromandel. These were one Swedish male, a Canadian woman, and a Swiss woman. Once they had completed their tour on Tuesday, April 11th, in his statement, Tamahedi is asked what he did next. He states that on Wednesday, April 12th, he loaded up the car and the Swiss chick, Gabrielle Staub, wanted a ride back to Auckland. He then drove an hour and a half to Auckland, where he dropped Gabrielle at a backpacker's before he dumped the car at the railway station. I wanted to include this piece of evidence purely to demonstrate that despite Tamahedi's previous convictions for rape, he was capable of being around a woman and controlling himself. Here he was, alone, with this woman and a vehicle, and he dropped her off safely as promised. Of course, he would have been well aware that others would have been able to place him with her, having seen them leave in the car together. I think this can be taken two ways. Either Tamahedi is not the uncontrolled sexual deviant he's made out to be, or he's calculating enough to know when he can get away with a crime. I'll let you make up your own mind. But I can imagine Gabrielle likely had some sleepless nights when she discovered exactly who it was she'd hitched a ride with that day. Before we move into the trial of David Tamahedi, I want to quickly outline 
that this season of the podcast is going to be more or less split into two parts. The first part, covering the trial and conviction of Tamahedi, and the second, and much larger part, will be my investigation, where you'll hear from new witnesses, and I'll discuss new theories. But before we get to that, it's absolutely crucial that you have a firm understanding of everything that's happened to date. A word of warning. This coverage of the trial will contain graphic descriptions of violence and sexual violence. Some parts have been edited due to their extreme graphic nature, but listener discretion is strongly advised. This is not recommended for children. He said he'd met them in a picnic or camping area and that he convinced them about how well he knew the area and talked them into letting them show them around the Thames area. And at some stage, he assaulted the guy and tied him up. He said he sexually assaulted her while the guy was tied up. He told me he eventually disposed of the guy. He said he had sexually assaulted the guy. He actually used the words he had done or ducked the guy. That's an expression I was sort of familiar with at the time Tamahiri used it. It's prison slang for sexual assault. He said he disposed of the guy by beating his head in with a lump of wood. He said he committed a sex assault on her. I can recall him saying the first sexual assault happened in the bush somewhere and at some stage he tried to get her to give him a blowjob and it He said that she was terrified. While this was happening, he had the man tied up to a tree. On several other occasions, he said he sexually assaulted a girl in a two or three day period after he had disposed of the guy. After the two or three day period, he ended up strangling her in the tent. You just heard a small piece of the testimony of secret witness C, who was later identified as convicted double murderer Robert Conchi Harris. In the trial of David Tamahedi, there was not one, but three secret witnesses. Men that were already incarcerated for horrendous crimes that were called upon to tell the court of their alleged conversations with Tamahedi while in prison, where he apparently confessed to killing Heidi and Urban. These witnesses would play a key part in the trial and the aftermath. In 2017, Witness C would eventually be charged and convicted with eight counts of perjury and be sentenced to a further eight years in prison. I wanted to start with this extract of Witness C because the story he's described is largely the one police built a case around to convict Tamahedi. But the thing about this case is that it is virtually entirely circumstantial. No murder weapon, no crime scene, 
no witnesses. And in 1990, when this case was in court, no bodies. Justice Tompkins, presiding over the case, instructed jurors. There is no direct evidence to prove that the accused killed the Swedish couple. The Crown is asking you to infer that he did. From facts the Crown claims have been properly proved. And thus, the Crown is relying on what is called circumstantial evidence. When proved, circumstantial facts connect themselves with each other in such a way that results in a strong body of evidence that carries conviction to the mind of the jury, that can result in proof beyond reasonable doubt. Taken separately, each fact might not amount to proof, but if taken together, you find such a series of undesigned, unexpected coincidences that you find are compelled to come to one conclusion, that of guilt, then you're entitled to find the accused guilty. But if the cumulative effect of all the relevant, proved facts falls short of that standard, if it leaves some gaps, then it has failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So what is that circumstantial evidence. This is a trial that is incredibly detailed and extends over more than a thousand pages. So we can't cover everything. But I'm going to cover the key points of the case and as we progress along, I want you to consider these different pieces of evidence like strands in a rope. And ask yourself, does the rope eventually become strong enough to hold the weight of this case? Or not? We don't know what elements of this case the jury placed the most weight on in their decision. But there are really five main areas to focus on. A possible sighting of Tamahedi and Heidi at Crosby's Clearing. The evidence around the breaking into and driving of the Subaru the secret witnesses, the discovery of Heidi and Urban's belongings at Tamahedi's house and in the Sunkist Hotel, and Graham Pierce's discovery of Heidi's clothes. I'm going to work through these over the next few episodes. But before we do, I'd like to backtrack to the early hours of the police search for answers, and the trail that eventually led them to David Tamahedi. In 1972, I was a detective sergeant in Auckland uh, and I joined that inquiry and I was part of, I think it was either local inquiries or general inquiries on the squad. You know, a murder squad is broken up into various compartments, you have functions. Uh, Brian James was the detective inspector. This is former detective sergeant Colin Matthews, otherwise known as Mouse. The incident he's describing is the killing of Mary Barcham in 1972 by a then 17-year-old David Tamahedi. She was a 23-year-old prostitute who was working up at Queen Street. He was a 17-year-old petty criminal from West Auckland. He picked her up 
they ended up in the basement of the Rembrandt Hotel, which is in, I think, City Road. Is it just off by Mr. Geddes Dental Renovations at the top of Queen Street, 482 Queen Street? And they end up there. She was found in the basement there with a severe head injuries. Um, he had picked her up and demanded oral free sex or free oral sex. She refused. He beat around the head with a gun and left her. She was found alive, taken to Auckland Hospital. A&E looked at her and said, she's in a bad way. We need to get a specialist to see her. They put her in a side room and they forgot that she was there and forgot to ring the bloody specialist. When they did, Professor Philip Wrightson came racing in the middle of the bloody night, uh, took one look at her, performed what they call burr holes, where he drilled holes in a, in a skull to let the pressure out. He couldn't do anything. She died. He was subsequently located at his parents' address out, I think it was Green Bay on New Linway somewhere, uh, was charged with murder. Kevin Ryan and Peter Williams defended him and convinced the jury that the hospital had contributed to her death, so he was convicted of manslaughter. I was fortunate enough to sit down with Colin in his Rotorua home to discuss his experience with Tamahiri and his involvement in Operation Stockholm, the murder of Heidi and Urban. Yeah, that was in 1986. Yeah. Uh, he skipped bail and took off to the Thames area where he lived in the bush for three years. He knew that area very, very well. His father uh, had lived in that area. He worked as a steel fixer for a firm that I used to work for in the 1960s. He was a hell of a nice guy, his father. Uh, he had relatives at uh, Matara Block, which is roughly about Ferrator, between Waihi and Whangamata. He'd spent a lot of time up in that area. And he spent those, he told us this himself, he spent those three years just walking between the Tapu Corrid Glen Road and Whangamata. And then when he got bored sometimes, when he got to, uh, well, yeah, well, halfway through the Krangahaki Gorge, there's a crossover point, and he would cross over onto the Tiara Mamaku Ranges and walk down until he saw the lights of Matamata. He'd stay there a few days, and then he'd go back again. The Swedish murder inquiry started. Uh, was it April? Yeah, it was eight, well April 1986. Yep. Yeah, well, uh, 1989. 89. Yep. So John Hughes from Auckland was a DI. He was appointed the inspector in charge. Bruce Raffin was the detective senior sergeant from Hamilton and a squad of from all around the country, really, worked on it. Now, they got nowhere. Uh, as is common after months of inquiry where you're getting nowhere, they changed the teams around. And I was working here as a, a training coordinator for Region 2 uh, on loan from Rotorua CIB, and the boss asked me if I'd like to go down to Thames and work on that inquiry, and I said, yeah, because yeah, I was born and bred in Pyro, I knew the area well, yeah. knew a hell of a lot of people down there. So I went down, Hughes, he said, 
Right, Mouse, because my nickname's Mouse. Mousey. Everyone knows me. If you said Detective Sergeant Colin Matthews, no one would know you, who you were. I used to get files sent to me, Detective Sergeant M. Matthews. Uh, so I got the job as OC suspects. And I said, where's my desk? He said, there. And there was a 100 suspect files on there. And just tell me, what, what does OC suspects mean? That exactly? means that you're in charge of all the inquiries in relation to the suspect or, or trying to work out who the offender is. Okay, so someone comes in with a tip or there's a new suspect, it's your job. Yep. Yep. Or you've got staff. I think I had three or four staff. Yep. They didn't have a clue what was what they were looking for or who they were looking for. So they'd created suspect files by going through all the conviction records for the whole of the Thames Valley for 20 years. And anyone that had a conviction for assault on a female was considered to be a suspect. And they were just trying to locate these people without much success. So Husey decided that we'd sit down and have a bloody shake the trees, an old-fashioned detective, bloody, let's try and work out, we'll go back to basics, stuff all the modern stuff, let's go and knock on some doors and find out who the hell was in Thames the weekend that uh, the Swede's car was last seen or stolen. So we just worked through the town and we came to that sun-kissed lodge, um, checked the records as to who was staying there that weekend and the name Pat Kelly jumped out. Now Pat Kelly was signed in as a union boss and we all knew that what the hell was Pat Kelly doing staying in a, a DOS house bloody in Thames. Uh, found that he had made some phone calls to an address in Auckland Two of my team were going to Auckland later in the week uh, on another inquiry. Uh, so I said to them, look, go around to this address in Avondale where these phone calls are made and see who the hell lives there and how, who this Pat Kelly was trying to contact. Uh, they rang me about half past five and they said, boss, we're standing outside this address talking to a lady looking down the hallway and we think we can see Urban Hogland's poncho because he had a very distinctive camouflage poncho we can we think we can see it hanging on the chair and i said to them who where are you and who are you talking to and they said oh uh, um, i'm mrs tamahiri and i said what and it clicked then that that was the address where tamahiri was living uh when he was set on bail and that started the whole thing so the question we then had to ask ourselves was how many convicted murderers and rapists were known to be roaming around in the hills of Thames at the same time as the, as Urban and, and Heidi went missing. And of course, we could only find one. Remember, by this time, Tamahiri had been picked up by police as a bail jumper for the rape of an Auckland woman in 1986. And as such, he wasn't difficult to find. Detective Sergeant Matthews' role in this investigation was as OC suspects, or officer in charge. So it was his role to interview Tamahiri. I asked him to take me back to that first meeting. So were you were you one of the first to go into that cell and, and you know, to yep. first talk yes. to Yes, Scott Baird, who's now one of the leading light detective inspectors in New Zealand. He was my scribe. Yep. Um, Wayne Kiley, who was a detective from Huntley, he was on the inquiry. He was the other one. So the three of us. 
Talk um, me through that. What when you went and saw him for that first? Can you remember much of that? Yep, he was cool, calm, collected, just sat there. And I think that first day we spent about eight hours in a, in a room with him. He never once asked to leave, never refused to answer, just looked you in the eye, whoever was talking, and, you know, it was right. super cool. Composed, kind of. Yeah. Um, so, help, yeah, I mean, I've never spoken to him. heard people describe him as quite intelligent and quite well-spoken. Oh, yeah. He's he's no no dummy, that's for sure. Uh he knows all the tricks of the trade. He's been through the hoops that many times. Um, yeah, it's just a game to him. Yeah. And that's the feeling you got, that the whole time you expected him to say, yeah, fair cop, Gub, I did it. But he'd get you to a point. Now, we were talking about um, how he stole the car, uh, and he'd lead you up to a certain point, and then he'd just say, well, you work it out. That's for you to work out. So on one of the trips, uh, when we arrested him, he was to appear in the Thames Court. So we went to Mount Eden early and picked him up. We took him back and we didn't stop at the court. And the minute we didn't stop at the court and we started heading for uh, Parawai and up Tararua Creek Road, when we turned into Parawai Creek Road, the whole interior of the car just frosted over. The windows all steamed over, and he just was there in a bead of sweat. You know, panic set in, and his body language changed, and he thought, where the hell are they taking me, and why are they taking me up here? So we took him up to the top where the barn was and said, you know, where was the car? Oh, there. So as we drove back down, he calmed down. So we then went to the panel beaters. And I'd spent some time with him asking him how the hell he'd stolen this car because it was locked. He claimed he just found the keys. Mm. Uh, no, he never found the keys. The yes. car was locked. Yeah. And he claimed that he got into it by putting a piece of wire down through the windscreen and flicking it up like that. And I knew that that particular make and model of car, that wasn't the way to get into them. So we called at the panel beater shop where this car was stored. And I said, look, Go and show us how you opened the car. And he boldly walked towards the car and he looked through the window and all of a sudden he went, oh, I did it like this. And it was physically impossible. You couldn't do it like that. It had to be done a different way. So he knew then that he'd been caught out on a lie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we then took him to court and he appeared in court and away it went from there. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Caught in a lie The way in which Tamahedi supposedly broke into Heidi and Oban Sabaru is going to be one of the key elements of this case. So let's start here. According to Tamahedi, he simply walked up Tararu Creek Road, found the vehicle with a window down about an inch, fashioned a piece of number eight wire into a special shape, and used it to unlock the car. He was then fortunate enough to find a spare set of keys in the glove box. The importance of this evidence can't be overstated. Quite simply, if the Crown can show that it was not possible for Tamahedi to have been able to unlock the door in the way he described, then the only way he could have entered the car would have been with the keys. And the only way he could have these is if he'd taken them from Heidi and Urban. So could this be done? The first thing to note is the type of locking mechanism used in this model of Subaru station wagon. It is not the standard pop-up style that was common at the time. Instead, it was a push-toggle button found down the side of the door. Tamahedi was called to the stand by his then-lawyer Colin Nicholson QC and described his method used to unlock the car to the court in 1990. Some sections here have been removed for time. This testimony has been read by an actor. Did you see anything in there that particularly interested you? Yes, there was food and clothing. What form was the food in? It was in cans, canned food, jam, cereal and stuff like that. What did you do? First of all, I thought, okay, well, I'll ping the lock on this thing because the sun had been on the car all day. There wasn't much sense checking the grill or the bonnet. So I went and stuck my finger in the exhaust pipe. And why did you do that? I was trying to work out roughly how long the car had been there. It was warm. I figured then it would have been parked there sometime that day. So I went over to the fence by the stile and picked up a length of number eight wire. Doubled it over and twisted it and put it through a partly open window on the driver's side. How were you able to do that? The window was open about enough for the leading edge of it to be quarter of an inch, half an inch. I put the wire through the top of the window, slid down the side of it by looking through the windscreen. You can position the hook on the wire against the tumbler, and then holding the handle and the wire at the same time opened it. Okay, approximately how long did it take you to do that? 
five minutes at most. Now, is that from the time of getting the wire and opening? From getting the wire and opening. Did you use any implement to bend or twist the wire? No. I took the rubber handle off my tomahawk and I used that to twirl the wire with and then I shaped the end of the wire itself with a metal post, a waratah. Use that to square the loop on this wire and that's about all. And what did you do with the wire when you opened it? As soon as the door opened, I just got it and flicked it out over the front of the car. Okay, what direction did it go? It would have gone towards the creek, but all I did was clear the first bunch of scrub with it. And what did you do then? Went through the dash tray of the car itself. There were a few maps there, so I had a quick look at them first, and then went through the glove box and came across a set of keys in there. Can you remember anything about them? Yeah, it's on a ring. Only two keys on the ring, though. So according to Tamahiri, it's not only possible, but doable, in a mere five minutes. The Crown would find otherwise, though, and would call a number of experienced witnesses to claim that it couldn't be done. Graham Doggett, NZ Sabaru's National Service Manager, attempted the feat, but stated that in his professional opinion, it would not be possible to unlock the driver's door of Sabaru HF8593 using a piece of number 8 wire placed through a 2cm gap in the window. The toggle switch is too stiff for this to be successful. However, not to be outdone, Tamahiri's defence called forensic scientist Rory Shanahan, who had been hired to see if he could break into the car. Shanahan first dismantled the car door to better understand the locking mechanism, before attempting to use the number 8 wire to open the door using a description provided by Tamahiri. He told the court, Having received this info what to do, later that day, I went down to the Subaru car. I had some number 8 fencing wire with me, and using his description, I attempted to make a wire to unlock the Subaru door. On that occasion, the gap between the top of the window and the other part of the door was 1 inch, 25 millimetres. I tried for some time, and I could not unlock the door using the wire. I then suggested that Tamahiri should come down to the car and demonstrate how the car was unlocked using the wire. On the request of Shanahan, Tamahiri was taken to the vehicle, given a piece of number 8 wire, and asked to unlock the car. Here is what Tamahiri told the court took place. During the early stages of this trial, did Mr. Shanahan come and see you in the cells? Yeah, he came twice. Do you remember on the first occasion what he asked of you? Yeah, he just asked me how did I get the lock in the car. Did you tell him? Yeah, I told him and did a pretty rough drawing of a bit of wire and he went off and tried it out. When he came back the second time, did he report what had happened when he tried? Yes, he said he couldn't do it, so. Was a suggestion made for you to actually bend the wire and demonstrate how you did it? 
Yeah, because I was arguing you could do it, and he was saying you couldn't. So did you go to the Subaru escorted by a prison officer one lunch hour? Was Mr. Shannon there, defence counsel, prison officers, and a court official? Yes. Did Mr. Shanahan give you a piece of wire? Yeah, he said, here's a wire, and demonstrate to us how you did it. And we twisted it up and got it along those lines. Actually, I put it through the window, showed them how to hold it against the toggle of the lock, went to hit the lock itself, and that's when the prison officer jumped in and said, you're not allowed to touch the car. When you bent the wire, did you have both hands free? No, I was still handcuffed to the prison officer. Were you able to actually proceed with your demonstration to the point where you could actually open the door? No, I was just told you were not allowed to touch the car. Did the demonstration stop at that stage? Yes, right up until actually knocking the lock, I had to stop. Tamahiri was never given the opportunity to actually attempt to unlock the Subaru. Mr Shanahan would state in court that after Tamahedi had put the wire through the gap in the window, a jail official said that permission had not been given for him to tamper with the car. He then said there was a debate on the topic at the time, where the Justice Department official endorsed the action, but then both of Tamahedi's defence counsel raised their objections. Ultimately, the matter proceeded no further. But using the new direction from Tamahedi, Shanahan was able to return at a later time and albeit with some struggle, was able to unlock the car with the number 8 wire. So where does this leave us? I believe the Crown was successful in proving that it is indeed extremely difficult, if not impossible, for a qualified technician to unlock the car using the number 8 wire. However, although he was never given the opportunity, it would seem that given direction from Tamahedi, it could be achieved. I'd like to note that Detective Sergeant Matthews recalled taking Tamahedi to the panel beaters where he claimed Tamahedi had discovered the lock wasn't what he expected and was, as he said, caught out in a lie. Did this initial sighting of the vehicle lock provide him the opportunity to go away and sit in his cell and properly consider how this might be achieved prior to him being asked to do this by forensics? Maybe. Or is it possible that Tamahedi, being an experienced car thief, is just extremely good at breaking into cars? and given the chance, was able to do so. Remember, Harry Goodwin in episode 2 had recalled that when they saw the Subaru parked up Tararu Creek Road on Sunday 9th of April, he hadn't noted that any windows were down at all, and stated they were closed and secure. And what about the piece of number 8 wire that Tamahedi claims he threw down the bank after opening the door? the piece that was never found. It seems convenient to his story that the one piece of evidence that could prove his theory beyond doubt was thrown away into the bush. 
It's worth noting that Defence Council visited Tararu Creek and proceeded to throw a number of bent pieces of number 8 wire out into the bush as hard as they could and then asked search and rescue to try and locate them and they were able to find none of them. I've found that depending on who you speak to the possibility of Tamahedi being able to break into the car will change accordingly. Police will say it's impossible and defence will say the opposite. Ultimately, you need to ask yourself Is there enough evidence to sway either way? Is there reasonable doubt? Remember, this one strand is not enough to support weight. But I'll be asking you to consider whether it, along with other strands, are enough. In the next episode, we are going to cover in detail what is arguably the most important an over-analyzed piece of evidence in this case. The sighting in Crosby's clearing of the man and the blonde. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that opinions and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself all persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law you'll find further photos and video on my instagram ryanwolfnz and i highly recommend you join the discussion with over a thousand other listeners on the guilt podcast discussion group on facebook a massive thanks to the voice actors in this episode lewis roscoe playing david tamahedi Dean Young playing Colin Nicholson QC, Jack Pritchard playing secret witness C, Rochi Harris, and Anna Waddell as Heidi. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding, and you can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast+. Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. On the next episode of Guilt.